You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to the 40th episode of the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me today are Jeff Ranke and Anna Wells. We each have more than 15 years of experience covering the manufacturing industry. Every week, we take the five most popular stories on our website and discuss the implications they might have on the industry going forward. Before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You could also help us out a lot by leaving us a positive review. Finally, if you want to reach any of us, you can reach us at Jeff, Anna, or David at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. Anna, how are you doing this week? Great. I uh, know you warned me that this was our 40th, but until I heard it out loud, yeah. wow, I yeah. was not ready. <laughs> right? Jeff. Exciting. Yeah. Jeff, we're coming up on a year. Hard to believe we're still going, David. I've only been bleeped once. Hard to believe. Do you say that on your anniversary? That's a weird thing to say. <laughs> I do say that on my anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew, right? I mean, can't believe we're still here. Families certainly weren't betting on us, right? Doing this again. Uh, before we jump into it, I want to uh, do a special shout out to uh, Mark and Jerry. Thank you both very much for reaching out uh, with some of the kind words regarding the pod- podcast. We really do appreciate all of our listeners out there. All right. Let's jump into the first story this week. Smithfield workers are fed up. Employees at the Smithfield Pork Processing Plant in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, say they are, quote, fed up with the company. According to the United Food and Commercial Workers Local Union, workers are upset over increased production line speeds, verbal abuse, and the removal of sanitation and other safety measures. The conditions are reportedly causing high numbers of injuries, grievances, resignations, and, quote, overall unhappiness. The company says it was surprised by the claims and disagreed with its employees. Four months ago, the union signed a new contract increasing wages, adding a bonus, and providing more options for breaks and leaves of absence. Since then, the union claims workers have since been forced to work overtime, sometimes in different departments. Anna, what do you take on this update from Smithfield? Well, I thought it was interesting because Smithfield, in in the report, um, it says that Smithfield said that they were surprised by the pushback from workers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're perhaps not acknowledging the general atmosphere that food workers have been dealing with coming off the pandemic. I mean, we ran a story last week where the AP reported that the government had adjusted some figures on just how bad the COVID outbreak had hit meatpacking. Mm-hmm. The article claimed that at least 59,000 meatpacking workers had caught COVID-19 last year and 269 workers died, Whoa. which is about three times higher than what was being reported by their union. Oh so, my yeah, so they had, you know, adjusted some of those over time. But I remember reading reports during the pandemic about how bad things were um, for meat workers, especially at Smithfield, where people were like frantic and terrified. And Smithfield workers were like suing the company because they didn't feel like they were being protected um, against, uh, you know, catching COVID. Mm-hmm. I feel like if Smithfield thinks that they can just sort of put this in the past, like, like draw a hard line. Like this part of it is over. We're moving on and doing what we want. I don't think it accounts for the significance and the severity of that experience for those workers. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also think that the worker shortage that exists now that did not exist at that time is maybe giving a voice to some of those workers where back in 2020, quitting, speaking up, things like that, where there was more of a barrier. The economy was very fragile. People were really concerned about, can I keep my job? Will I keep my job? Mm-hmm. Now there's more opportunities for manufacturing workers. So maybe they're going to see more of this from their staff standing up and saying, look, you know, maybe we're not over this. What what yeah. happened to it? You know, you can't just like sweep it under the rug, move on, and then try to really apply a ton of pressure on these employees who have been through a lot, honestly. 
I don't want to say sour grapes, but is this them being upset that they renegotiated first? I don't know. I mean, that's a that's a fair question to ask, but um, I don't think it takes away from the fact that this has been a really traumatic, you know, two year period for those workers. Understood. Jeff, what's your take on Smithfield? I think Smithfield's the management of that company is so far disconnected from the operating environment Mm -hmm. that they don't have an appreciation for what these workers have gone through and are going through right now. Mm -hmm. They feel like they've already extended the olive branch, so to speak, and they've got a new contract in place. What they're failing to appreciate is that 1875, which is the new base hourly pay, Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean what it did 20 months ago. Mm -hmm. That that, that is not the same. That isn't competitive with service industries. That isn't competitive with retail. Mm -hmm. So for them to feel like they've done enough at this point, they're just not understanding the situation. Mm -hmm. It was also very alarming when workers start talking about sanitation and safety issues in a food processing plant, mm-hmm. right? That that can never be a thing. Like yeah. at a minimum, mm-hmm. you should feel safe and clean in a food processing plant. There's 3,600 workers in this facility. There, there's all sorts of potential issues, not even related to worker safety, but just product safety yeah. that could come out of that type of dynamic. So that is extremely concerning. I also saw in a statement that Smithfield said they spent 800 million dollars globally on worker protection. Yeah. Is it just me or does that seem like they're fudging some numbers there? Seems like high. what yeah. did they include in worker protection? I mean, does that include like a fresh mask every five <clears throat> no, yes. I mean, how how do you spend that much? Well, even? they didn't have any PPE on hand, so they likely, you know, bought while the market was really hot and got gouged. I'm sure that was it. Also, weren't Something. food workers like already wearing masks and gloves? Like Right. They should be wearing gowns, hairnets, all yeah, of like those types of thing. things. <laughs> so I that number blew me away, which again, I think sort of supports the disconnect that they have between what is going on in their facilities. Mm-hmm. This is hard work. Mm-hmm. This is this is extremely taxing work. And to be somewhat unsympathetic and ask, basically be like, hey, look, we already did our thing. Yeah. I think that's really naive. And I think there there is the potential because of the size of this facility, again, 3,600 people working here. Mm-hmm. If they don't get something going here, okay, food food workers, I mean, there's lots of going, lot going on. I mean, we talked about Frito-Lay. That strike's been settled. Kellogg's, I believe, is still ongoing. Mm-hmm. Yep. If these folks go on strike or if they do something more, I know they've got an agreement in place, but that could really impact the, the whole supply chain for pork processing in yeah. this country. Which mm-hmm. is already and, t- and if yeah. that bleeds into other workers saying, hey, you know what, Smithfield is doing it in Sioux Falls, mm-hmm. we should be looking more closely at what we're doing. Yeah. And if that's a trip, there's sort of a ripple effect there, they have a huge impact on this industry. I think some of the sanitation and safety measures were that were removed were some of those extra layers of protection that were put in for COVID and uh, have since been removed. I mean, maybe they just uh, you know dried up before they didn't want to spend another two hundred million. <laughs> Is COVID over though? Last I checked, we still got a lot of problems. So. Yeah, no, completely agree. I'm yeah. not saying that's that's good. Right. Yeah. Why would you go through the effort of removing something yeah. if the workers clearly wanted it? Mm-hmm. What's the big deal? Leave it there. Yeah. One thing I found interesting was that they're bringing in workers from different departments, and I just find it fascinating because we're hearing more about it. We heard about it at John Deere and mm-hmm. other companies that aren't on strike, but just looking to fill some hours. Can you be if you're if part of the plant is on strike? And you're brought in from a different department to help cover. Are you an internal scab? I mean, if you're not part of the union, what are you going to do in solidarity that's not going to risk your put your job at risk? You know, right. That's the hard part, I think, for these workers. I feel like that 
really puts them in a difficult situation. It does. It 100 percent does. And I mean, a very risky situation, as we saw with John Deere and, you know, the ambulance being rushed there within hours of unqualified people doing different jobs. Um, Yeah. One thing that also struck me was that are corporate statements being created by AI randomizers now? (laughs) Because it's just some mix of shock, disappointment with a vague rebuttal and a little bit of chest thumping. And that's just all of them. Just like, my goodness, I never could have imagined that our happy, happy workers at our lovely clean facility would ever be upset. Also, we're doing banging numbers right now. Well, I just think it, you know, not to keep beating that drum, but like it just goes back to a disconnect. And this is an industry, again, we've talked about how tight the margins are. Worker pay has not always been great. It's considered a lesser skilled workforce, potentially, when you're talking about meat processing. And I think this whole dynamic of now more power and more sway shifting to the workforce, mm-hmm. this management has just not adjusted and they're mm-hmm. just not getting it. They're not used well, to it either. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. like as part of it, you know, how how many times like we just came off this, you know, in the pandemic when people were like going to work, even though they're afraid of getting sick because they knew that they had to. Yeah. And right. now they don't. Yeah. Well, yeah. And we saw this with the people at Kellogg's, but even after they renegotiated, they're still being forced to work weekends and in different departments, that's going to cause, you know, even if they were happy with the 175 bump and the $520 bonus they received, you know, you can't be happy if you're making more money, if you can't spend it or have a good balance, a work-life balance. Well, it's going to impact product quality. I mean, mm-hmm. we're looking at potential prices increases for food, which we've already realized. Oh, yeah. So now if these workers do need get more, which it seems like they probably should, mm-hmm. That's going to increase prices there too. It eats into margins potentially. So I think that's what a lot of management is probably looking at right now. And it's just this paradigm shift on numerous fronts they're just struggling with. Mm-hmm. Right. Let's move on to our next story. Tesla software re- <clears throat> Tesla's software recall may head off fight with U.S. regulators. Tesla issued a recall to fix a safety problem in its electric vehicles, hoping to curtail a likely confrontation with U.S. safety regulators. The recall was automatically sent as a software update and covers nearly 12,000 Teslas with a glitch in the full self-driving software. The glitch can make cars stop for no reason. The recall covers all four Tesla models and the glitch actually came from a software update about a week prior. A day after the update, Tesla received reports of, quote, phantom braking. The recall shows that Tesla is willing to issue a recall when it pushes out software updates to fix safety issues. It also sets a precedent for other automakers to do the same. Regulators have been on the company to know why it didn't recall vehicles when it sent a software update to fix the problem with Autopilot that addressed problems detecting emergency vehicles parked on roads while crews were responding to crashes. Anna, is this just Tesla giving regulators a softball? I think it's an important softball if that's what it is. I mean, a step in the right direction for sure. I mean, I think you can argue that the net benefit of using an over-the-air update, especially for something that's safety-related, is far better than the slow process of manual or mechanical updates that, like, take months or years to fully realize, like, not to mention many automakers are putting the onus on the consumers to take in their vehicles for service, which dramatically decreases the effectiveness of those recalls. Mm -hmm. But I think we have to look at transparency as having equal importance here because if Tesla has a safety problem and they fix it right away and don't see the need to let anyone know that that's been done. Um, I mean, are you comfortable with that? Like how many times are you comfortable with that? Like if, you know, maybe Tesla has 10 in a year, maybe they have a hundred at what point, like, I think at some point it makes a difference to me knowing mm-hmm. what, what is happening there. Um, I mean, I think 
you could make the argument that if recalls are not occurring, um, but updates are, that it makes it easier for automakers to maybe rush certain technologies to market and then kind of tweak them and fix them along the way Mm -hmm. because there's not this big dramatic, I don't know, news cycle around this recall. Right. Um, Isn't that exactly what we're worried about with Tesla to begin with? So to me, this is actually a really important step. I know it feels like a softball because it seems like kind of a no brainer, but I just, I think they need to be doing it. I think they all need to be doing it. No, I think you're right. Recalls in particular, if anything, they let potential buyers know of potential issues as well as regulators, but you know, it's a more informed public. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff, how do you feel about automatic software updates on your car? I think it's great. Yeah, I think it's it's a positive thing. It streamlines the whole process, and I think that's what NHTSA was sort of having a hard time with at mm-hmm. first, not understanding that because they have a process that they go through in terms of mailing out people who have this vehicle, letting them know what's going on. Postcards. Then they take it to the yeah. dealership. The dealership tells them what happened. There's coding, there's processing, mm-hmm. there's data all over the place. Where I saw uh, Tesla just basically said, you know what, we can just do this. Mm-hmm. We're not going to go through that whole process. We can just do this. I think NHTSA was a little bit taken aback initially. I think they've come around or hopefully will come around. It seems like maybe the, I think we are going to have another story too, where Tesla was right in the approach to doing this. If they had a little bit more communication, which is their fault for yeah. not doing it, if they would have communicated a little bit more clearly with this agency, a lot of this would have been eliminated. There wouldn't be such a contentious dynamic that they would have had to offer up a softball or mm-hmm. seem like they're being more appeasing than what they really mm-hmm. are. Um, you can you can invent the better mouse trap here, which Tesla kind of has. Yeah. But you have to help people understand how it works in this situation too. I like the idea of software updates on a car because one of the things when you when you take your car in to get any sort of service, what's one of the things they always tell you? Hey, no recalls. So there you go. Yeah. It's and I, I, that's just such a bad way, you know, <laughs> of doing business between that and the like rogue postcards, like you said, Anna, mm-hmm. that uh, look like junk mail. And it's like, oh, no, actually, uh, my airbag is going to explode and kill me. Well, and remember how many people they were like, we've recalled all these vehicles on those Takata airbags and the actual like percentage of people who went in and got that fixed yeah. done yeah. was like sadly low in comparison to how many were recalled. But it's because they cannot get in touch with people because mm-hmm. they send out a stupid postcard to your like address that you had when you bought the vehicle or whatever. Like how? How do you track everybody down? No, and it's well, and sometimes when uh, you know we received one because it was like a tire sensor, mm-hmm. and it's just you know if it's not mission critical, I'm not going to rush out to get it because a lot of times when it's also hardware, uh, because of supply chain issues, those parts aren't available. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I don't know. I think this is again, it's just another example of Tesla doing the right thing. Kind of the wrong way. Yeah. yeah. No, agree. I'd agree. And I think it does set a great precedent for other automakers to take this same approach, especially in this case. This was a serious situation yeah. with, with vehicles shutting off, essentially. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the fact that they can flip a switch or send out a software upgrade where people just have to say, accept. Yeah. How? I mean, uh, we talk about we talk about like being that engineer on the other side where it's like you get that email and it says, hey, my car just stopped and turned off. Yeah. And then it's like, you know, one is a fluke and then you get like 10, 12 and you're like, <laughs> oh dear, someone go look at the code. You know, I mean, I couldn't imagine being yeah. in a car and it just completely died. Well, I mean, I can imagine it. I've certainly driven some beaters in my time, <laughs> but uh, I mean, if it was a new car and you didn't expect that, you know, when I had a rag instead of a like a gas cap for a while, 
I expected Ooh. some problems. You were that guy. You had a rag? Yeah, I had a rag for uh, oil and a rag for gas. It was just, and I didn't know you could buy an aftermarket oh, gas man. cap. I was just like, so oh. So you used like the most flammable thing that you could find. It was, like a, it was tucked a in gasoline there. Gasoline-soaked rag. I had, it, there was, it wasn't soaked. I'd be more concerned about the oil. Yeah. I mean, that's. <laughs> it was both. I mean, uh, it was. That's crazy. Uh, it was like an 88 Oldsmobile olds like they didn't even like it was just an 88 old and uh yeah it was uh it was a death trap when i sold that car i was paid in change <laughs> it was awesome that, it was, that's impressive it was a perfect fitting <laughs> a perfect ending to that relationship all right let's move on to our next most popular story <laughs> startup applied for meta trademark before facebook facebook recently changed its name to meta unfortunately it looks like the company's status is complicated it turns out that another comp- another company, Meta PCs, has already applied for the Meta tri- trademark. The company sells computers and other hardware and seems to have beaten Zuck to the punch by nearly three months. And Meta is having some fun with it, with basic Photoshop skills, as well as a declaration that Meta PCs was changing its name to Facebook. See? See how we can have fun here? <laughs> a federal trademark grants a company nationwide protection for, for its brand, but it doesn't mean a company legally owns any word, and it cannot prevent others from using it. Meta says it can all be settled, Jeff, for $20 million. Do it. Give them some cash. Mm-hmm. They earned it just with those, I don't know, whatever you call them, the, the, the visuals that they provided with Mark Zuckerberg selling their computer equipment. That yep. was fantastic. Memes and viral videos. Well done, mm-hmm. Meta. I was surprised they even tried to defend, or why would you trademark a term like Meta? I mean, I understand the context, and that's a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, made me think about some other words that were actually trademarked, which I was surprised. And again, like you said, you can't enforce all of them. It's more the context yeah. in which they're used, but like baggies. <laughs> superhero is trademarked, what? believe it or not. Yes, yeah. really. Marvel and DC actually share a trademark <clears throat> for superhero. Dumb. I'm not sure how you would enforce that, mm-hmm. but they do. Realtor was another one I was surprised. Onesie, there's a world you guys are living in. That's actually a trademark <sighs> term. Almost out of it. So is ping pong. Um, the other one that this one made me think a little bit about was Twitter actually wanted the trademark for tweet. Mm-hmm. Oh. But a company that actually um, they own like an advertising service related to Twitter, um, they actually owned the trademark for tweet to begin with. A bird owns it, Jeff. Uh, yeah. <laughs> is it? Is it or it's, it's even more clever of a name. It's TwitAd was the company that initially <laughs> trademarked the term tweet. Wow. So they had this and there was some back and forth. And initially a court ruled that Twitter sort of – I don't know, initialized their, started the use of the word tweet. Um, that's but in order for them, for Twitter to actually get the copyright, they did end up paying this company mm-hmm. some money for it. So they actually do have it. So there's, I guess, a little bit of precedence here. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how it kind of pans out. Ideally, this computer company would get enough notoriety from this that maybe, maybe Zuckerberg and Facebook would have to like pay them yeah. so they can have the copyright. The other thing that's kind of interesting, Facebook has a copyright on the word Face for any application to social media. So nobody huh. else can use face. I suppose. Whatever. That's oh, like, like Apple having a little eye, right? Right. Yeah. So. Well, uh, <laughs> all the trademark law you wanted. Yeah. And I will say, while they have shown some marketing savvy, all the criticism for Facebook being called Meta and it being a terrible name. I mean, that's still on Meta PCs, too. It's not like all of a sudden it's a good name now. Um <laughs> 
Anna, finally a feel-good story about Facebook, huh? I know. I enjoyed the story because um, discussions relating to Facebook lately have been very intense. Mm-hmm. And then they announced their dumb rebrand, and it was fun to like <laughs> Their dumb it. rebrand. That's what everybody's shooting for. Yeah. <laughs> right. I know. Well, it was like the timing of it was so transparent. And I know they're like, but it has nothing to do with this. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, we're not stupid. We know what's happening. Like you're like in a dumpster fire of drama right now. <laughs> But um, but it was fun to see it immediately be panned by like everyone in the world, yeah. mm-hmm. and then now they have this potential copyright issue, which is like funny. And I'm curious how this was not uncovered in the due diligence of like right. their legal team, which is probably well paid. I'm guessing. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I'm hoping that Facebook settles with these guys. Um, but even if they get bullied out of it, like uh, TMZ said that they got a 5,000% increase in social followers yeah. just <laughs> in the last week or so because of this That's drama. Great. And as Jeff said, like, you know, their visuals were funny. Maybe uh, Facebook will, I don't know, try to s- countersue them for putting Mark Zuckerberg's face and holding their product <laughs> and pretending like he was selling it. Yeah. Maybe that's how this settles. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, they're going to get a boost out of it regardless, I think, um, just because like everyone was having fun with it and they got a lot of exposure. So even if they do have to change their name, eventually they got a platform. So maybe. Yeah. And honestly, they haven't talked about whether or not the $20 million uh, figure is real, but it's also ridiculous that that's just a drop in the bucket for Facebook. So just to clarify, Facebook, that term is not going away. It's just a product under the meta umbrella. No, it's actually, it's more like Google Alphabet. When uh, Google went through the exact same thing, when they're like, no, the company that owns Google is now called Alphabet. Right, and so everyone it, was yeah. just like, what? No, yeah. but, oh, so I thought you were saying that Meta, like Facebook was going to own Meta. No. It's I'm Meta like, that's, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Sorry for misunderstanding that. Um I was wondering if also there are any worse name changes possible, like change your company name to Numbers or Conjunction, Spacebar. Or the Washington Football Club. That's actually not bad. It's growing on me. Remember when Prince changed his name to that symbol and everyone was just like, ah. And then like, I don't know. It never, I mean, you can't say it out loud. So it's just like. Just gave you more words. The artist formerly known as Prince. Yeah. Um. Numbers, conjunction, space bar, and collective consciousness, all taken. All taken, actually, already. Just because uh, people having fun with the fun with the name. I wonder how many Too pe- much. how many names got like gobbled up like in the days leading up to Because remember how they announced way ahead oh, of time that they were changing their name? I mean, maybe that's why they took space bar. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you know what? I'm sure they didn't miss this. I'm sure that they saw and knew about MetaPC. And they're just like, it's just some small computer company out of uh, California, I believe. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll just take it from them. We are the juggernaut that is Facebook. And Facebook now owns the Meta, I think, Meta.com. Yeah. So, like, these other people did not have that URL. No, it's probably MetaPCs.com. So, I don't know. .net. .biz. <laughs> yeah, it's MetaPCs.biz. Um. All right, let's move on to our next most popular story. Architect resigns from billionaire's, quote, psychological experiment. Charles Munger was Warren Buffett's right-hand man at Berkshire Hathaway. So he's done well for himself. Five years ago, the 92-year-old Munger said that he would donate $200 million for new housing at the University of California, Santa Barbara. The only caveat was that his blueprints had to be followed exactly. Munger Hall, which cost $1.5 billion, would be the largest dormitory, dorm, <clears throat> largest dorm in the world. 
an 11-story block that would house 4,500 students in small, single-occupancy rooms, most of which that didn't have windows. Charles Vision, as they call it, would encourage students to leave their tiny rooms and mingle with others in the building's common area. Other architects say Charlie's vision was cross-eyed and would have unknown potential and potentially harmful impact on the undergrads. The project's consulting architect, Dennis McFadden, called it, quote, a social and psychological experiment. Anna, how bad was your dorm room in college? And does this sound like a preferable alternative? No. And I had the worst dorm at UW-Madison, by the way. I was in the, um, I was in Og Hall and it was like cinder blocks for sure. But we had windows, man. (laughs) Like there was a lot of fires in the trash chutes, but we had windows. And I think even more importantly, we had windows because there was fires. And anyway, (laughs) like... This story read like dystopian sci-fi and I was like really alarmed to see that UC Santa Barbara was just like willing to sign on to this project and just agree to the terms of this um, person. Yeah. Uh, obviously, well, well, it was 200 million out of a $1.5 billion project. Okay. So it was not the entirety of that funding coming from this person. Um, I know they're under a lot of pressure to add on-campus housing at this university in particular because apparently part of their strategic goals to like get some of the students out of the surrounding communities. They must be living in these, you know, uh, neighboring towns. Mm. But I have to say this does feel like a psychological experiment and it could have, I think, some really undesirable side effects. I mean, for me, the lack of windows feels like a problem because a lack of daylight has been linked to stress and depression and other mental health issues. I think it's stressful enough to be a college student. I don't think we need to like force students to like flee the bleakness of their <laughs> homes. You, to, you like, should, you be, should be able to social. know when it's nighttime and not. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. what do we, I don't, that's such a backwards thing. I don't know. And I, I, I think like we could put them in dungeons to the same effect, but would we want to? I mean, that's horrible. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I can't imagine, as I said before too, that it's like up to code fi- from a fire safety standpoint. I Like they, how how would you if there's a bunch of rooms and everybody's living in there and there's a fire and you can't get out or you can't open a window? Yeah, I mean that's just really scary sounding. So I think you just I don't scream know. and stampede. I guess yeah. So I don't know. I it just seems like two hundred million out of one point five. Like they they couldn't have done this without him and maybe done it in a way that is like actually looking at the specific needs of students and um and maybe that's why this atar- architect walked away. I mean I I can see why he did. I, uh, I too had the worst dorm at my college so much so that right after I moved out, uh, they tore it down. Mm. Yeah. Mine's, tore it down. mine's are wow. also torn down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it wasn't like an, an age thing. It was just, yeah, this is bad. We got to start over. Yeah. We can't salvage this. It is. <laughs> they, yeah. uh, yeah, they made a high rise with condo style dorms and I'm like, well, that sounds a lot more pleasant. The dorms are so nice now here. Yeah. And I, I had to live in a a box yeah no we can this can be the you know old-timey thing for this episode but it's definitely like back in my day it was a prison uh taught me a lot about life though you know (laughs) i made some everlasting relationships actually no i don't talk to any of those people anymore (laughs) uh jeff (laughs) uh what was your dorm experience like it was pretty good actually um dorms of whitewater were pretty solid i was in a high-rise type you know Mm second apartment oh okay at all very good so one out of three yeah no i loved it there don't get me wrong like i had a great time yeah College was the best. 
Huh. It was. But um, it was not nice in there, no. <laughs> Very good. Uh, Jeff, about the prison for kids. <laughs> <laughs> so first of all, just to give a little context on Charles or Charlie Munger, he was quoted as saying, did, did you see this quote? I'd rather be a billionaire and not be loved by everybody than not have money. <laughs> Whoa. He said this out loud. Well, I mean... He was being real honest about it. Right? So basically he's saying, look, I gave you kids a roof and some some yeah, kind of, you know right. walls. What are, you, what are you complaining about? Right. I think he's just quoting Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> Tis better to receive than to give, I believe yeah. is how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so this guy definitely, I mean, he's consistent, I guess. The other thing that's kind of weird, so UCSB, I mean, they're known for just having this beautiful campus. It's a gorgeous area. Yeah. If you've ever been in Santa Barbara, it's oh, yeah. amazing. But it's also a little more expensive place. So to envision this square structure housing 4,500 mm-hmm. students, mm-hmm. that I can see where that does not fit in with the aesthetic yeah. of the area. Yeah. It seems like it is definitely misplaced in terms of where it's being done and the scale. How do you, I understand he wants to get people into like communal areas. How do you design a communal area for that many people? I mean, how, how do you make that work? Like yeah, I mean, you have plenty yeah. of space when it's a four by eight, you know, cell. I mean, yeah, it's the rooms do look unappealing. I wouldn't. I mean, typically when you build a billion dollar building on campus, that's a recruiting tool. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. not so much here. I mean, if you took people through this, I don't think it'd be a selling point right. for going to this otherwise beautiful university in a you know really cool area of, of California. So, yeah, I, I think it's an interesting thought, but not for a university in California for four thousand kids. That right, the, the location and the scale seems off. I did think that. While a psychological experiment, it wouldn't necessarily be crazy that this became a thing. I mean, we have seen some crazy worker housing uh, facilities, particularly in other countries, right? Yeah. Uh, where they do have, you know, no window cells that they live on campus, and people are miserable. Oh yeah, they jump off of them. Yeah, they have nets. I mean, oh my yeah. god, like uh, they had to install nets on these buildings because. People were becoming, workers were becoming so depressed. They were jumping off the building. Yeah. Uh, that's just not something you want to aspire to. I didn't know that he was not only a billionaire, but such a happy billionaire. Yeah, he loves his money. <laughs> Doesn't okay. care if you like him or not. He's got money. I also looked up the worst college dorms in America, and I couldn't find anything useful or credible. I actually just found a bunch of things that linked to articles on the best college dorms in America. Oh. So, you know. Maybe that's uh, something we got to get on. Let's write something up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, the only thing I can relate to is really bad army barracks. Oh, I mean, we definitely going down in the reserve. There were times they were going to condemn a building, and they said, "Wait, we got these guys coming in for a couple weeks. Let's hold off on that." Yeah, yeah. There were there were definitely, you know, some barracks with cockroaches and other stuff going on that was not great. That's uh, we looked at a place like that to have our wedding. Where, uh, a place with cockroaches? No, it was like a, it was this. It was this beautiful rooftop overlooking the lake, and we were just kind of. And then there had an indoor facility with like a stage and a ballroom, and we're like, "This is beautiful. Why is no one else using this building?" Oh, it's condemned. Just like it could be. So let's bring three hundred of our friends and family to the top of it, and we can all crumble to There's our death. Serious asbestos issues. We're yeah. probably limiting. You just took three years off your life. Right yeah, now, don't so. breathe. Yeah. Do not breathe. It is there. a great deal. Though. Everybody should wear a mask. <laughs> all right, our top story this week. Lawyer behind Pop-Tart suit has filed more than 400 lawsuits. Last week, we talked about how Kellogg was recently hit with a $5 million lawsuit for false, misleading, and deceptive Pop-Tart marketing. Jeff was just trying to get a little clarity on my dessert fruit diversion, aversion, 
But the story has industry-sprawling implications. Food labeling lawsuits are hot right now, and many of them can be traced back to Spencer Sheehan, a New York lawyer who has filed more than 400 lawsuits, many against food and beverage manufacturers. According to NPR, Sheehan has almost single-handedly created a historic spike in class action lawsuits, which are up more than 1,000% since 2008. The lawyer is averaging about three new lawsuits a week, going after everything from fudge legitimacy in cookies and brownies, limes in chips, and real milk in pudding. Sheehan wants to challenge companies that cheat consumers, but he could also earn anywhere from 25 to 33% per settlement or award in each case. Jeff, what was your take on the uh, you know, food and beverage manufacturing crusader? Here's the problem. He's not wrong. Like, he's not. Okay, I I get that. And you do want truth in advertising, truth in packaging, all truth in promotions, all those things. So there's a point. Agreed. What I struggle with is there has got to be a better way than sapping company resources to deal with these types of lawsuits. Mm -hmm. You would think there would be a better way to go about doing this, whether it's some sort of, I know it's kind of like working for a best case scenario. Regulation. Regulation. No, I don't want regulation. regulation. What I'm saying is having a group in the industry that could police themselves and basically saying, hey, look, Keebler, you know, when you're putting fudge on there and you don't have real fudge in there, just knock it off. Otherwise, yeah. these guys are going to have to bring a lawsuit. And Your you're product have to is not made by elves. Be the, real about that. <laughs> the great hand slapping legislation of well, 2021. Because then it would be. Look, if you don't do this, you're going to deal with a lawsuit. Yeah. And what do we want uh-huh. Kellogg's and these other companies dealing with right now? lawsuits like this or paying people and getting them back to work. No, I think that's a big part of it, but I feel like people have done that. You know, people are emailing companies, telling companies to do it right, and maybe this is the only thing that gets them to budge. Okay, but is it really worth a lawsuit to make these changes? Mm-hmm. When you pick out if you're going to buy these products, okay? Why do you do that? Because it tastes good. Yeah. Okay. Do you really scrutinize the packaging and everything else? And I'm not saying that gives them license to put whatever they want on there. Right. But again, when I look at the resources that it's taking to deal with this stuff, overloaded court system, not to go down that path too strongly or anything, but all these frivolous lawsuits, this isn't, again, it's hard. It's not frivolous because he's right. Because he's Mm -hmm. he's accurate. So that doesn't make it frivolous. It just seems unnecessary Mm -hmm. to get the change that they're looking for. Maybe more of a nuisance lawsuit. Yeah. It seems like there's a better way to get the end result. Yeah. I do struggle with it too, because I find it hard to draw a line between manufacturer responsibility and human ignorance. Anna, where do you stand on it? (laughs) Easy transition. Set the table. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I know it is nodded. I agree because it's, um, you see both sides of it and, and the, the reader comments on this story were, pretty intense and like very varied. Like people had very different perspectives on it, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Um, I like the aged vanilla thing to me was pretty flagrant. I thought like, I think companies for a long time have gotten away with using vague terms like aged or natural. I think we discussed natural, that last oh yeah. week. Yeah. Um, and in the past decade or so, there's been a bit of a crackdown on that. Um, for me, it's a fine line. Like I, I agree, like truth in advertising is important. Um, however, there are some things that, like, I think uh, exist on packaging maybe for clarity purposes. Like, I know there's a lot of lawsuits or have been a lot of lawsuits about milk by mm-hmm. the milk producers saying that, like, you cannot call a plant-based milk milk. Milk is only derived from a cow. Um, 
But if it's like a nut milk and, and it's supposed to go on cereal and it's supposed to mimic milk or be a, a secondary option, then I don't know. Sometimes I think that there's a place for like providing enough information that consumers understand what it's for. Yeah. Um, and like for, you know, if, if, if you could make that argument for this also, like, so the strawberries don't exist in the food at very high levels, but it's. Supposed to take taste like strawberries, so that's clear, mm-hmm. right? So maybe using the word strawberry or putting a strawberry on the package yeah. is a way of depicting that, and it's a helpful, necessary thing. Yeah. Like I think if you go down to the minutia of it and you you look at like how it's depicted, what exact words are being said, um, you know, it's important to to clarify what is you know usable, what's not, what's appropriate, and what's not, but. Does the consumer get much benefit out of that? I don't know. Are you saying that? Oh, sorry. Are you saying that uh, you would sooner buy nut milk than like a liquid nut product? Right. Like I just I don't think that it's like out of line to to try to clarify it in that way. I mean, I think it's pretty clear when people see soy milk and nut milk, people don't think that 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 is coming from a cow. Right. Yeah. They know yeah. what that is, but they, you know, I don't think it. it There's no deliberate intent to deceive or, or, or something with those right. terms. It's, it's become, more intent to clarify, right? right. It's um, cow adjacent. Yeah. Cow adjacent. <laughs> um, your, a, your point about the vanilla is actually, Sheehan calls that his most successful case or one of his most successful yeah. cases uh, was this win that he had against A&W Root Beer. And a little bit more on that was the beverage boasted of using aged vanilla in the recipe but it turns out that it was a synthetic vanilla flavoring. And, mm-hmm. you know, A&W changed its packaging. It seems like she got what he wanted. And But it, I got to imagine that if you picked up an A&W root beer and it said synthetic vanilla flavoring on there, mm-hmm. maybe you'd think twice. I don't It depends on where it is. If it's in the ingredients, are you really going to see it? So yeah. in this case, okay, if it's plastered on the front of the label saying, what was it, aged vanilla, whatever yeah. it was, yeah. and they're using that as a promotional tool, okay, maybe there is something to that one. Mm-hmm. But again, giving these guys a heads up or A&W and saying, look, industry standards say you need to put that in the ingredients is more accurate as a, or this is going to happen, yeah. which I mean, this guy's a track record now. Mm-hmm. He's going to do it. Yeah. He's yeah. going to do it. So, so is the conclusion then that everybody has to add like flavored, very tiny next to this stuff? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Or okay. slightly less tiny. Yeah. He, I mean, some of it is, you know, like the real milk thing. That was kind of getting down to what is the definition of milk. Mm-hmm. So because they were using skim milk or nonfat milk, it's not – I didn't know that skim milk is actually, by definition, not milk. I didn't either. But I, I feel like was where was that conclusion derived from? Was it a lawsuit? I mean, oh, like, yeah, who yeah. decided that? Yeah, and who goes And who knows and cares? Yeah. So. Right. I mean, but, like, that's not something – so in my opinion, there's still milk in that product, even though it's not milk by definition. I don't know. It's uh, some of the things were kind of trivial, but again, when I have hint of lime chips, I'm not thinking. I'm getting. <laughs> You're just you know, getting a hint. I'm not. Get, I'm not fighting the scurvy with the vitamin C. <laughs> you know, I know that I'm eating lime flavored dust on a corn chip, right? And by the bag, <laughs> it's not part of your fruit intake for the day. Yeah, it's a party bag, party of one. <laughs> Uh, I just, I think uh, we need to be smarter shoppers and though I admittedly am not always, and I can be sold by things like this. So manufacturers do have some responsibility, They do, but it, and it just seems easier to be honest because completely agree with you, Anna. Like when you're shopping in a store, you're making a lot of quick decisions. And I think that's where the importance of uh, truth and labeling comes into play. Mm-hmm. 
All right. For sure. <clears throat> Let's move on to in case you missed it. Uh, the stories that, you know, weren't as popular on the website, but still stand to make a big impact on the industry going forward. Anna, let's start with you. What was your in case you missed it this week? Okay, let's do this. <laughs> I'm excited. What did we miss? What did we miss? Oh, you guys missed this. Um, so a total of three fires took place at the Blue Ridge Fiberboard Plant in Denville, Virginia, between October 17th and October 31st. So that's like a two-week time period. Wow. The latest of which was pegged as being due to built-up heat in the manufacturing process. Uh, the first fire was on October 17th, and that was blamed on a mechanical error described as oil leaking from a large asphalt boiler. That sounds bad. And then the third fire um, and the second fire were both blamed on heat buildup. So it was actually two separate causes for these three fires that happened in two weeks, which is like kind of a red flag, (laughs) though I'm not here to speculate on that exactly. Maybe some problems going on there that need to be addressed. But to me, actually, the bigger story was how much um, the Blue Ridge Fiberboard plant employees were said to have participated in this firefighting. Oh, They were like um, trying to put out fires when the firefighters got there. There was um, coverage about how some of them were like um, on forklifts and like moving product out of the way so the fire wouldn't spread. Um, And after three fires, man, I cannot believe that they still had that kind of dedication from their staff to manage yeah. this. Yeah. And it really made me think like we've really like in the last, I don't know, six months, there's been this narrative about people these days are so lazy and nobody wants to work. And like these are statements that I don't agree with personally, honestly. But, right. um, you know, I think there's lots of factors influencing the labor shortage, as we've discussed. Mm-hmm. Um but, like, let's talk about these dedicated people at Blue Ridge instead of trotting out, like, that tired narrative. I just think there's still a lot of people out there that are, like, super hardworking. And, man, like, this really illustrates it, that these people were so dedicated to, like, uh, try fight the fire. Fight the fire, man. Yeah. And after three fires, they're still fighting the fire. And, and like, the last story was, like, Blue Ridge employees were going to stay overnight and monitor the area. Man. Like, unbelievable. So, I don't know. Let's stop talking about how people don't want to work. People don't yeah. work hard. Like enough of that. Tired. So much about uh, employee churn or turnover. These guys are willing to die for their company, which I, is, I mean, is great. It's great. Like, I mean, uh, a lot of that is lost when people talk about work ethic problems. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I hate to think about, but I would be interested to know what the ages are of the workers. I just see like, no, these, that's a good point. I, I see these like 68 year old guys that have been pulled back from retirement so many times. Just like, we got to save the asphalt boiler. Like he's in the, he's in the, uh, the fork truck, just like picking things up. Like, no, that's the one on fire, bud. Like, yeah. uh, but you're right. The, uh, the employee dedication. It was just insane reading about well, it. I was the like, dedication I and, and also what they're really doing is potentially preventing those firefighters and those other people uh-huh. from rushing into an area that they don't know as well. These workers obviously do. They understand mm-hmm. all the materials that are involved and what could happen. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, the sacrifice is pretty inspiring. That's it pretty is. Cool. And I, to be clear, I'm not saying like to be a hero and fight a fire at your plant. Don't do that. Yeah. But, um, Unless you want Anna to talk about you on the podcast. Yeah. No, I, I'll still be a hero to Anna. Send me an email. I'll still talk about you. <laughs> <laughs> send an be email. A hero. About thought about it. Be a hero. Don't be a hero. I will still talk <laughs> just don't call him superhero because that is that is trademark oh very good um no that's uh i wonder if they get any sort of i I had to say compensation but 
there has to be like a hazard pay bump if yeah, you're fighting these, a fire. These people are raised, man. Right. Um, all right, uh, Jeff. What is your in case you missed it? Any more heroic employees? I'm not going to say heroic employees, but maybe some chances for others to show their heroism potentially mm. because Ooh, because the Pentagon was rattled by a Chinese military push basically calling a recent successful testing of a hypersonic weapon by China um, a Sputnik-like event, Hmm. referencing the satellite launched by Russia in the late 50s that kind of spawned the space race. Mm -hmm. Basically, the Pentagon has a lot of concerns over China's growth and their expansion of their nuclear arsenal and advances in space, cyber, and missile technologies, as well as threats to Taiwan in that area. And I thought this this hit home on a couple of fronts. Number Number one, we're talking about China in a military perspective. We've always talked about them from an industrial perspective, a uh, competitor financially, and now it's getting into the military side of things, which aside from any political concerns, which there are plenty um, yeah. mm-hmm. throughout Asia, there's also, when we talk about addressing military shortcomings potentially, that leads to a lot more spending. We've been in a phase where there's been a bit of reduced military spending. Mm-hmm. So when you look at companies who are military contractors, like, I don't know, Boeing, who's not had a great time of it lately, Yeah, you wonder how, if there is a ramp up, if there is an expansion in defense spending, what will that mean to some of these companies here in the U.S., yeah. the big contractors? The other thing that caught my eye was he talked about cyber, oh. cybersecurity. Yeah. And that being a huge potential weapon that China is using to infiltrate not just mm-hmm. Department of Defense and military-type applications, but industrial ones, yeah, manufacturers. manufacturers. I mean, we've talked about IP challenges, people stealing IP from, you know, in Chinese companies taking American IP and developing knockoff products. Well, now it's being state-sponsored. Mm-hmm. So it expands concerns there as well. Mm-hmm. We've talked about cybersecurity a ton on the show, okay, and throughout the sites and everything else. But now when we see those two areas potentially impacting industrial output, it could be very interesting to uh, see what happens. I found it interesting that uh – Putin and Russia recently said that they were kind of going to double down or invest heavily in hypersonics as well. And lasers. And lasers. He wants lasers. Hmm. Very specific request. Don't ask him what for. For what? Don't ask. All right. Sorry. He wants lasers. I mean, I got to look more into that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's an interesting memo. I want hypersonics and make the lasers happen. I want laser pointers. No reason. (laughs) No reason. Uh, Anna, any thoughts on the implications of... The Chinese hypersonic push? Uh, It was interesting for sure. Um, You know, obviously the U.S. is doing this stuff as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do we know like how credible, I'm assuming it came from the military, it's pretty credible that this is real. I know China in the past has done some kind of smoke and mirrors type stuff about their tech developments. Mm. Um, The hypersonic definitely looks valid in mm -hmm. terms of what they were able to do. Basically taking what was unique is they actually were able to send it into space and have it come back. Wow. So that would make it even tougher to detect and find, Mm -hmm. which could definitely be the instigation for even more dollars being funneled towards those types of programs, Mm -hmm. not just in developing those missiles, but in developing defense systems against them. Well, I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago about like what were the near-term applications and maybe they're coming faster than than we thought. Mm -hmm. All right. My, in case you missed it this week, was Ford unveils an EV motor in a concept electric vehicle. Ford is pouring billions into electric vehicle and battery factories in anticipation of a rapid shift to electric vehicles. This week at the SEMA Auto Show in Las Vegas, the company introduced a new EV motor. The Illuminator electric crate motor is based on the motor in the Mustang Mach-E GT. 
And to show it off, they put it in the F-100 Illuminator, a zero-emission concept pickup based on the 1978 model of the same name. And it is a sweet-looking ride. Hmm. The concept truck features two Illuminator motors to facilitate all-wheel drive, and it produces 480 horsepower and 634 foot-pounds of torque. And I wish I knew more about that than what it just says on the page. (laughs) The motor would allow builders to electrify modern and vintage cars, trucks, and SUVs. The motor retails for $3,900, but they didn't disclose how much the company dropped to make the F-100 Illuminator. And they were quite clear that it is not for sale. I've never seen so much legal speak on a press release that says, you cannot buy it. Stop asking. (laughs) I feel like they've had some requests. Um, the move is another. Oh yeah, uh, the move is another step towards the company's efforts to sell turnkey aftermarket electrification products. And I was just thinking, when you have something like a 1962 Rambler that gets 12 miles per gallon, you know, something like this motor might pay for itself rather quickly. What do you think, producer Eric? He loves it. Jeff, what were your thoughts on the new motor? Beyond the fact that this truck just looks cool. It does. It looks awesome. This is this is really cool. And what it really does is a lot of, I think it preserves some of that, the gearheads out there who still want to tinker and yeah. still want to play around with cars mm-hmm. and, and get in there. And it allows them to take a body like this and drop an EV in there. That's that's pretty cool. What it, as far as the torque numbers and the horsepower, what that really means for a truck like this, you can pull stuff. Like yeah. oh, it's okay. not just environmentally friendly. It's It can be used for real world stuff. You can tow a boat. You can mm-hmm. do what you want to do with what you would normally do with a truck. So I'm on board, man. I think this is awesome. Yeah. Um, I do like the idea of, you know, sort of people in their garage electrifying old cars. What do you think, Anna? Yeah. Well, and it'd be interesting to, you know, we have no clue like at what point in time uh, actual gasoline powered engines are going to be just gone, gone. Yeah. Yeah. But the, there is definitely a market for retrofitting, I would think. So yeah. um, it's kind of a cool I- idea, and and I, you haven't seen much of it elsewhere. So I'm excited to see people start to use this. It did remind me of uh, it did remind me of Zero Labs Automotive, which is based in Hawthorne, California. That's a really cool company that restores and modifies mm-hmm. classic vehicles. Yeah. Uh, the company started with the original Land Rover Series Three One Hundred Nine wagon and the first generation Ford Bronco, and they look really cool. But boy, are they expensive! <laughs> really? Yeah. The company re-engineers the body with new components to attach it to a full battery electric chassis, so it's not just you know uh, plug and play EV motor. They make built-to-order commissions that start at one hundred and eighty-five thousand dollars. So if you if this motor from Ford retails at like four grand, what what's their all in cost on electrifying your own vehicle? I'm not sure because I mean all these auxiliary parts that they're looking to mm-hmm. uh, market obviously are going to come into play. It's not like you can just get the motor. Yeah, it's but. not just the motor. It's mm-hmm. you know in the battery, it's the drivetrain and everything else. Yeah. So it would be a very intense build. But again, <laughs> look at some of these vehicles that do get restored and yeah. the amount of money that's spent on them, and oh, it also yeah. creates a secondary market for all of these parts. So with over time, you, you, it'll be interesting to see how the supply chain sort of changes, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. potentially for an onslaught of EVs and what you can do here now with them now and tuning them up. Yeah. And we don't know what the road looks like to a fully EV uh, cars on the road, mm-hmm. but I have to imagine that when that happens, gasoline will spike and having an old car that still is, mm-hmm. you know, taking gas, it'll be, you might be cost out of actually running the thing. That's a very good point. Yeah. All right. Oh, the other thing that I found interesting was from Mark Rushbrook. He's the global director of Ford Performance. 
He said, quote, the fact is electric performance is fun. And as the industry moves forward toward electric vehicles, motorsports and the performance aftermarket will too. I just found that to be interesting that he's like, no, driving an EV is fun. Like interesting selling point. Well, I mean, like there's all these EV race cars now and it's pretty, I mean, are you losing out? It looks pretty cool to me. Yeah. It's uh, what was the, uh, the fun truck that recovered the other day? It's just, um, no, uh, the Toyota's new EV. What was it called again? It's a fun truck. Yeah, that, that was, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, it's good that, you know, the automotive industry is just getting to be fun out there. We're having a lot of fun out there. Right now is a great year to have fun in the automotive market, as we've covered many times. Right, as long as building it doesn't cars is easy. Building yeah. cars is easy. Getting the parts are easy. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's move on to our final thoughts this week. Uh, Anna, before we get out of here, what is your final thought? Well, I just wanted to update. Um, some of you wrote in and... Um, Asked about Halloween and my kids, which was super nice. Um, they had an amazing time. We trick-or-treated for 90 minutes, <laughs> which to me is like an insane amount of time to be doing that. Yeah. But the the enthusiasm did not wane. I had a two Disney princesses and a dragon, a very ferocious dragon, and they got all the candy in the world. So 90, 90 minutes of trick-or-treating is a lifetime out there. It is so long. And I was like, oh, another block. All right. I, okay. <laughs> yeah. And then we just went on and on and on. Yep. What is, okay. I think we've asked about it before, but now that I have the full bucket of candy in yeah. my pantry, I mean, realistically, where can you get at with the dad or parent tax on that candy? Oh, I think, I mean, I always look at it like it is my responsibility as a parent not to let my kid eat all this because it's not good for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I will fall on that sword and just take, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Just be smart because it can start out low, but then it can exponentially increase with time as they forget about said candy. Yeah. Mm. I think it's already forgotten at at my house. Like, it's in the laundry room. I already hit it. It's gone. We did not make it 90 minutes. I had a chase from Paw Patrol and a dragon as well. And uh, we made it around the block, and uh, he was really excited. And then he's just like, I'm freezing. (laughs) just like, like, why are we out at night, Dad? What? It's so dark. Do you want to get more candy? Yeah, but... I'm freezing. Just like, <laughs> all right. And so we're, I'm like, let's just take a break. Mm-hmm. We go home. And he's just like, I'm done trick-or-treating. Yeah. Just, you know, he got Smart. his two pieces. He got his two Tootsie Rolls and was a happy happy camper. Um, Jeff, how was your Halloween? It was good. We didn't have a lot of trick-or-treaters, but I treated myself to about seven beers while I was waiting. <laughs> yeah. So it was a good day. <laughs> I got to say, the adult, like the adult part of trick-or-treating – I was kind of surprised by that. The number of neighbors that are willing to offer free beverages. Um, And it also, I didn't think anyone was going to smoke me out, but the one neighbor that noticed that my kid was using a fireball branded bucket, you know, I was both very happy for for the neighbor to realize that, but then walked away like, oh, they really think a lot of me. (laughs) Uh, Jeff, what's your final thought this week? Um, you know, this weekend I'm looking forward to again, heading up North. No, um, yeah. should be like one of the last like nice weekends we have to get up there and, um, chase the elusive Musco lounge. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. Are you that is, to- that's a real thing. That's not like the hodag. That's a real fish. Yeah. So, the hodag is real, Jeff. Oh, yeah. my bad. <laughs> Jeff, uh, 
Are you going to that same place that uh, you've gone to in the past? No, we're going up to Eagle River. Um, yeah, do a little um, grouse hunting, a little nice. musky fishing. So it should be fun. I hear they have a great children's museum as well. They do. We will not be checking that out. It's so fun, Jeff. Go. <laughs> <laughs> um, my final thought this week is that uh, I've been finding myself buying more exotic nuts <laughs> these days. Can you define? And sometimes sometimes you just have to stick with the classics. Can you define uh, an exotic yeah. nut? Give, well, give an example, please. The nut game is getting weird out there where there's all kinds of powders and flavors of nuts in terms of different clusters. You get granola with the nuts, all different types of nut options out there. And I was drinking a drinking. I was eating a hot honey nut last night, a walnut. And I was just, just eating it thinking, you know what? I think this would just be better as a plain walnut. I am. I will admit, I'm enticed by good marketing. Are you channeling like your inner, inner Charlie from Always Sunny? This seems like a conversation he would have. Oh, I mean, no, but I think, feel like I always am. Yeah. You know, I got that same wild card mentality when it gets weird. Um, but no, it's just, uh, you know, I get it. You got to diversify in a flooded market. And so you uh, start getting weird with the nuts. Uh, sometimes I just need a shelled pistachio and that's it. Those are a lot of work. They are. But I mean, what yeah. else are you doing when you're like... Sitting at home watching TV. That's a perfect time. Yeah. You get that delicious delicious meat and then mm-hmm. you throw the shell in the bowl. It makes the clink. Actually, I'm going to go get some right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Classics though, not hot pistachios combined with some sort of granola and then in a maple glaze. Yeah. Ch- uh, Trader Joe's has some like, um, they're like chili or whatever uh, pistachios. Yeah. That you still shell, but yeah. they're super like greasy and the, yeah, don't do that. Yeah, they're greasy or they're, if they have that cheddar flavoring, it's just like it's worse than the Dorito hands, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. It's just like I can't lick them because then I get more on it. Oh, I'm just, I'm sunk here. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Also, before we get out of here, uh, we've been getting a lot of requests for the Today in Manufacturing t-shirts. So we're going to continue that giveaway. If you want a Today in Manufacturing podcast t-shirt, we really appreciate you guys helping represent the podcast. Just email any one of us um, at Jeff, Anna, or David at IN.com. Um, Anna, did you, so I saw that you tried the, the shirt on mm-hmm. during the show. Did you take it home? Or I you, kept it. Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. I still, I'm still using it. <laughs> Very good. Trick or treating in it. What's it? Oh, right. Brand recognition yeah, everywhere. I'm Always. Um, all right. Before we get out of here, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast and to email the podcast. You can reach any of us, like I said, at Jeff, Anna, or David at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. You can also subscribe to our daily and weekly newsletters. Make sure you get the podcast in your inbox first. All right. For Jeff and Anna, I'm David Manti. This is the Today in Manufacturing podcast, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.